there is a commonly held belief amongst meditators that the place where you really go for the insights is through sitting on a cushion and that everything else is somewhat secondary in importance to the work that you do on a cushion. I also feel that if you actually track yourself during the day here and really listen to yourself during the day here, that what's often discovered is actually many of the insights that come, come not so much on a cushion, but in those moments when we meet the world, in those moments with our eyes, our ears, our bodies, that we meet the world around us. It's, it's the way in which we're mirrored by the world. You know, it's, it's like if you, you're looking, you have a mirror in your, your bad bathroom or bedroom and you stand on the side. You know, what does the mirror show? You know, nothing too much. To really, when you stand in front of it and you see yourself, that's when you really explore in a way how you are in that moment. It's not as if the work on the cushion is irrelevant. I'm certainly not meaning to imply that. I see floods of people leaving the room. But it's the work on the cushion is actually what cultivates an environment inwardly of stillness and calmness that is really ripe for understanding, that is really receptive to insight. So in the talk this evening, I'd like to talk about Dharma gates. The way that we, through all of the small moments in our lives and our day, really are offered those possibilities of understanding. So one way of doing this is to focus upon some of the contact points of our day here on a retreat. So this talk could be about the mind and our roommate. Could be about our mind and the schedule. Could be about our mind and the weather. Could be about our mind and our selected retreat adversary. Could be about our mind and the notice board. Now, in talking about this, of course, you might be tempted to think, well, she's really scraping the bottom of the barrel for talk material when we have a talk on the notice board. But hopefully this is not true. Hopefully this is not true. But to see the ways in which, through these contact points, we really have the possibilities for deepening in sensitivity, in wisdom, in compassion. It's helpful for us to reflect in a retreat upon the places, the very visible places, where we get hooked. The places where we see our minds dance that reveal us to ourselves. Whether it's the notice board or the lunch line or the schedule, we call these mirrors. These places where we see ourselves interacting in very visible ways 
we can call them Dharma gates. We can call them gates because they open to us the possibilities of understanding and freedom. Now these Dharma gates often lie between territory that we have traveled many times, old and familiar territory, almost ritualistic paths of heart and mind, where we see ourselves reacting in ways we've reacted countless times before, where we see our stories and our projections. And the other side of these Dharma gates is the territory within ourselves where new pathways of freedom and transformation are possible. And I would call these places of contact, these places of interaction, Dharma gates, because they are the places where we do learn some of the deepest lessons of our lives about what really does lead to happiness within ourselves and what does lead to sorrow. We learn about what leads to contractedness and tightness of heart and mind and what leads to spaciousness and expansiveness. We learn about what leads to freedom and what leads to limitation. In a very real way, when we visit the notice board, when we visit the lunch line, when we encounter our roommate, we are visiting ourselves. And everything that we need for transformation is held and offered within that meeting. Now, it's very easy and perhaps easy, even tempting to dismiss these ordinary moments in our days and in our lives as being somehow irrelevant and unimportant. We can feel, oh, well, that's not what I, why I come on retreat. I don't come on retreat to, to study my relationship to the notice board or study my relationship to the lunch line or my roommate. We may feel, well, I come on retreat, you know, to have really blissful moments and high experiences and golden insights. All of those may come to us. They may also pass. And it's true to say that the enduring companions in our lives are the countless ordinary moments. The countless ordinary moments where we can get hooked and where we can get lost. And the countless ordinary moments that are also the most fertile ground of understanding. You know, there's that wonderful Zen saying that says, the only truth you find on the top of the mountain is the truth you bring with you. What we are really doing in this practice is, is in a way kind of studying ourselves and our lives. We're reflecting upon ourselves and our lives. We're learning to bring really an extraordinary sensitivity and attentiveness to each ordinary moment. And what we do begin to see in the light of that extraordinary attentiveness is those ordinary moments are transformed. They become deeply special. They touch us. Fernando Pessoa-Seven said, the startling reality of things is my discovery every single day. 
The simplicity that we emphasize on a retreat is one of the very powerful vehicles that leads us to appreciate these Dharma gates that we encounter. You see, much of in the beginning of a retreat, in the end of a retreat, in the middle of a retreat, that we begin by our practice, often really by letting go. We let go of a lot of our busyness, our likes, our dislikes, our control mechanisms of avoidance and distractedness that can so fill our lives, and often, actually, many of those mechanisms are really what camouflages the power of our ordinary moments. We learn to let go so that the power of these Dharma gates can really be revealed to us. We learn to let go of our obsessions about what we don't have and want, about what we have and don't want. We learn to let go of our obsessions with the next moment and the goals that lead us to lean forward and away from where we are. And this letting go is so powerful because we are here. We are a presence. And in that presence, we are, of course, invited to welcome what is, to appreciate where we are, to love what we have. Now, this extraordinary mind on a retreat that interacts with the notice board and the roommate and the lunch line and everything else is, of course, no other than the same mind we brought brought with us. It's no other than the mind that interacts with all of our lives. Now, on a retreat here, some of the hooks, well, there's less, we might say. You know, there's less. We're not going out to work. We're not in traffic jams, you know. We're not interacting with our partner or our parents or our families. The hooks are a little bit less, but that doesn't make them, of course, any less intense. And there, I think, are a few factors that are important to recognize that are somewhat essential, we might say in our capacity to transform the ordinary moments of a retreat in our lives into Dharma gates. Now, one of those factors is the factor of interest. If there's no interest, as I mentioned this morning, there's really not much attention. That interest is the root of all wise attention. In a sense, passionate interest is the root of commitment. Interest is what engages us. It's what allows us to be a very conscious participant in each moment. And interest opens us. It allows us also to be touched by what we encounter, the subtle lessons and changes of each moment. True interest really does engage us on every level of our being, our minds, our hearts, our attention. And it's so primary in this practice. You know, can you imagine the, the, if you listen to the, the story of the Buddha's awakening or anyone's awakening, and you heard some story about, you know, someone who accidentally kind of stumbled into a Bodhi tree and 
you know, sat around and said, oh, yes, I'll get around to freedom once I've finished with this obsession I'm so fascinated with. Or, you know, it'd be kind of neat if I got enlightened tonight, but then maybe it's not really that important. Or, you know, if we heard in the story of the Buddha, you know, that I need something more exciting to happen, to make it worthwhile for me to sit here and sit up all night. Imagine what it's like for us if we come in the meditation room and kind of feel, well, you know, it would be a neat accident if I happened to stumble across a breath once every now and then, you know, or, you know, well, maybe, you know, I'll just, you know, spend this 45 minutes, you know, rehearsing my Christmas shopping list, you know, maybe at the end there'll be time for a breath or two, you know, well, you know, you can kind of predict what your retreat would be like, wouldn't it? You know, it would be whatever. It would be something, perhaps difficult to define. And the great gift of interest is that it actually awakens us. That's the amazing part. Interest awakens us. Another of the ingredients of transformation is actually the willingness to learn. And that, you know, maybe that sounds obvious, but sometimes it's not always that obvious. You know, we, I think we should probably never underestimate the power of some of our attachments to the, the territory of heart and mind that's so familiar to us, even when it's painful. You know, the powerful attachments sometimes we have to our our fantasies, our, our stories, our rehearsals, and, and sometimes never underestimate, really have very many fixed images and beliefs we carry about ourselves, about others, but about ourselves. They lead us to say, I know you, I know myself, I've heard this before. It's sometimes hard to learn when we are filled with so much knowing. To be truly willing to learn, to be able to say, well, I just don't know, to enter into each moment like a visitor. The willingness to see each moment, each thought, each sensation, each sound anew is the willingness to be taught by. You know, one of the great gifts, I feel, that we could offer to ourselves in a retreat, one of the greatest of all renunciations, is to be willing to let go of the word again. It's such an obstacle to learning. You know, when we say, oh, it's this pain again. It's this story again. It's this subject of the talk again. It's this feeling again, it's this memory again, it's this sitting again. How much history is carried in that word again? How much knowing is carried within it in a way that sometimes really gets in the way of learning? Sometimes being able to let go of that word again is actually letting go of that mind that is a little stuck in what it knows. It's, it is really what enables us to learn to smile at our zafu, to smile at our aching back, 
to smile at that thought that we've seen more than once, to smile at that story that that repeats itself and say, what does it have to teach me? What does it have to teach me? That capacity to be taught by the moment also involves really this this willingness, as we do mention more than once, to let go. And then sometimes on a retreat, we do awaken to some of our deepest addictions, to fantasy, to avoidance, to food, to blame, to distractedness, to the past, to rehearsing the future. And sometimes these these kind of addictive layers, we see them as being ways of almost protecting ourselves, but they also limit us. You know, in this practice, actually, we learn to let go, not just once. You know, I sometimes think of this practice as the path of 10,000 renunciations, and that is sometimes just in one sitting. Our capacity to let go does come with investigation. It doesn't come through commanding ourselves. You know, it doesn't come through shouting at ourselves, let go, let go, let go. We probably just stick more. But we come to investigate. We see that investigation and awareness and insight are so clearly linked. When we we learn to notice those those moments when our minds are playing the familiar songs. We learn to notice when the records get stuck. We learn to notice those repetitive visits to particular rooms in our hearts and minds. An investigation then doesn't say, this is bad, this is wrong, it doesn't shout at us to let go. It's much more that questioning of, why do I hold on so tightly? Why do I hold on so tightly? What is, what is the attraction? What is the investment? What is, what is the demand or the expectation that is here? I'd like to explore this evening some of the most universal dances of the mind experienced on the retreat. They really do have the possibility of being very powerful dharma gates. And some of the ways in which the mind works in a retreat, of course, is not personal to any one of you. It is so universal, which is what makes it so interesting. In a retreat, we we have a very intimate acquaintance with some very powerful mind states that occur not only on retreat, but that also run through our lives. That in this tradition, these mind states are called obscurations because they obscure our capacity to see clearly and deeply. Those mind states, those mental states of dullness, of restlessness, of craving, of aversion, of doubt, these mind states are actually the root, I would say, of every mental state, every emotional storm, 
every mind storm that we experience in our lives. You know, we think of what dullness is. Of course, we see dullness on a retreat, you know, the kind of nodding dance. But dullness is much more than this. Dullness is the root of indifference, of cynicism, of of depression, of disconnection, of habit. It is dullness that in our lives or on a retreat that has the power to lock us into a personal world of disconnection and separation. Of course, we encounter restlessness on a retreat, but reflecting on it, we see how much restlessness is the root of so much confusion, that there's so many tones of restlessness. You know, from that slight unease to anxiety, to agitation, to worry, to obsession, to a sense of discontent, of of never really feeling at home anywhere, inwardly or outwardly. We see the way in which restlessness is a force, a powerful mind state, that keeps us always on the move, often very scattered and distant. We see craving arise on a retreat. Of course we do. You know, we'd say, oh, I'd like this for lunch, or I'd like a different roommate, or I'd like something exciting to happen. But we see it too so much in our lives, this never enough mind, the mind that feels really hardly ever satisfied, that it's never good enough, that we never have enough. That mind that can carry with it on some level, always this kind of shadow of deprivation. Aversion is certainly not an unfamiliar visitor on a retreat. It's also not an unfamiliar companion in our lives. And we see its power to alienate us. Aversion, too, has many tones many flavors from slight irritation to hatred, to rage, to anger. And we see the way in which aversion is so productive. You know, how many judgments, how much blame, how many thoughts it produces, and how po- what a power aversion has to carry the past into the present. What a power aversion actually has to do that. We encounter doubt in a retreat, you know, more than once, you know, that question, what on earth brought me here? You know, what am I doing here? All of the other things I could be doing this week. But we see doubt in our lives, you know, from skepticism to a kind of paralysis of fear. The fear of commitment, the fear of wholeheartedness, the fear of risk, the fear of unknown, the the kind of undermining of confidence inwardly, even in ourselves, to change, to awaken. Now, some people have the mistaken, and I would say very mistaken, impression that these states of mind are somehow little transitional retreat experiences. You know, that you have for a couple of days and then you get over them. The truth is that these states of mind are much more deeply rooted forces. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha, as you said, that it's really only the arahant, the fully enlightened being, who is really free from all of these states of mind. 
So, you know, it's a good, it's a good prospect. Instead of thinking, okay, well, on the third day, you know, these obscurations finish and I really start my practice. It's actually rather helpful to think that we actually may be meeting these states of mind through our lives. That these are very powerful Dharma gates that really teach us about freedom. Certainly in this practice, we're not, a, we're not concerned with kind of getting over these states of mind or getting through them. We're much more concerned with learning from these states of mind, of seeing them as Dharma gates. Now, these states of mind arise in some very obvious contact places in a retreat. You know, with our roommate, how many states of these mind have you gone through? You know, with lunch, with the weather, we see how many times these states of mind arise. And one of the places they arise in is, of course, with the notice board. But you can fill in your own blank, you know, find your own favorite hook here. Now, of course, I don't want to make you paranoid about the notice board. You know, this is a very necessary, practical means of communication. And please don't avoid it totally after this talk, because you may actually miss something. But to notice, to notice when these very practical, necessary places in our lives become something much more. You know, become places where we really do get stuck and entangled. Now notice, you know, when the mind is dull, of course, you know, we, <laughs> when we're lost in dullness, we don't notice that much, actually. You know, it's, there's a lot that passes us by. You know, including, you know, we, you know we, we walk out, we wonder where everybody is, you know. We haven't even noticed the notice board yet, you know, that it has a schedule and sittings begin at certain times and then there's lunch. You know, we find ourselves getting lost a lot of times when we're dull. You know, we're always trying to play catch up with life. Notice when, the, when we're hooked into restlessness, nothing escapes our attention, does it? I mean, we have read every notice. We know everybody who's got a note so far. You know, we wonder why we haven't got one and think of all the ways that we might get one. You know, when we are restless, we are on. We are really on top of this world. You know, the mind is moving. It's got a lot to do. We wear out pencils, you know. There's a whole paper industry involved in supporting the restless mind, you know. It is hard to be. Notice when we're hooked into craving that one of the manifestations of craving is getting into improvement mode. You know, and we see that on a retreat. You know, we've got recipe suggestions, you know. We've got landscape ideas, you know. We are designing new buildings. It gets into improvement mode. And never mind what it does in the outer world, there is the whole inner improvement mode to get into. That is the movement of craving. Now, of course, aversion. We have a lot of fuel for aversion in this world. You know, notice when you're aversive how Everything seems to be here with the sole purpose to annoy you. <laughs> Nothing goes right. Nothing is quite okay. Um, you know, the, the, the mind gets very judgmental. 
the mind gets very judgmental with aversion, very judgmental of other people, very judgmental of ourselves. And it's such a trap that we place ourselves in. Notice when we get hooked in doubt what it does to our energy levels, what it does to our effort levels. How when there's doubt, how it's really difficult to commit to anything at all, even one breath. How doubt at times really paralyzes us, how nothing seems to make sense. You know, we want answers. We want certainty. You know, we'd like a kind of retreat with, with clearly defined goalposts. You know, sometimes I can imagine, you know, when there's doubt, it's almost like the mind really delights in goalposts. You know, like if we said, okay, the goal of today is have three breaths in a row. You know, that, that, sometimes that would make people happy. You know, would say, okay, I can do that, you know. But one of the kind of really strange things about insight meditation retreats is the goalposts keep changing all the time, you know, and you're never quite sure where they are. You know, there's a, it's very hard to measure anything, isn't it? I mean, it's probably very hard to measure today whether you've had one decent sitting, you know, because no one said this is a definition of a good sitting. Everybody gets it, you know, this is a definition of a bad sitting, this is a definition of doing well, this is a definition of doing badly. For the doubting mind, this is like a nightmare, you know, it's really like a nightmare because it's like, how do you measure anything? You know, how do you measure if you're getting somewhere or not getting somewhere? How when there's doubt, it's very hard to just stay in that place of, I don't know, but I'm here. You know, I don't know, but I'm present. How, that, how that's really a challenge for doubt. Now, one of the important insights that is really offered to us through these Dharma gates is that we really begin to see more and more closely the way in which our personal world is constructed and created on a moment-to-moment level. We really start to appreciate the power that our minds have to take us into both heaven and hell. We really begin to see the way in which the causes of sorrow and of joy really do lie within our own heart and mind. And we begin to understand that rather than being lost, we can begin to find the, sta- the space to welcome these Dharma gates, to welcome them as places of learning. Now, finding the space to welcome some of these powerful states of mind does ask for a certain lightness of heart and ease of being, rather than heaviness or judgment. You know, it becomes clear, I think, and this becomes clear as the retreat goes on, well, when these states of mind, when we're really gripped by any of them, one of the effects that they have is that they're so convincing. They're deeply convincing. You know, the thoughts and the images and, and reactions that arise from them, we're absolutely sure they're true. You know, we're sure that person on the retreat is really out to annoy us. You know, we're sure things are set up in a way to most directly make us uncomfortable. 
You know, we can get so convinced by the thoughts that come. And we, there is a wisdom, actually, in learning, learning to hold some of those convictions with a little more lightness of, of heart. You know, at, at the retreat center where I teach in England, you know, one of the features of it is that we have these colonies of rooks, uh, which are like really, like really huge blackbirds. And one of the things they do is they make incredible amount of noise. And they don't migrate, these birds. You know, they live there all the time, you know. And, and they have these kind of rituals, especially like in the mornings and the evenings, where they squabble. It sounds like they squabble constantly, you know. They're so loud, you know. And one time on a retreat, you know, someone came to me. And, you know, these, by the way, they just keep, they breed, <laughs> you know. It's like there's more and more, and they've been there for decades. And one time on a retreat, somebody came to me and said, I cannot meditate with those rooks there. You know, I would like you to move their nest. <laughs> you know, that was a very interesting thought. You know, I could see myself up these great oak trees, you know, 70 feet high on a ladder, carefully moving these nests. And I looked to see whether they were joking, you know, because I was sure this had to be, you know, kind of a joke. Deadly serious, you know, I'd like you to move the nest. Fine, you know, I'll do what I can. You know, I'll do what I can. But we notice, like, we get so convinced, and we get so convinced by some of the thoughts, some of the images that come. And sometimes it's really, it really actually is quite some suffering. Another interesting thing to know with some of these mind states is that they're really interwoven. You know, it's like no one is just a dull person. No one is just an aversive type. No one is just a greed type. They're always interwoven. Like you notice like if you're sitting and you're feeling kind of dull, and actually one of the symptoms of dullness is a sense of boredom. You know, like this really isn't very interesting. You know, one breath is much the same as another breath. Who are they trying to kid here? You know, they, they're bored. I'm bored. You know, I'm bored. That's one of the symptoms of dullness. We have this perception of sameness, that things don't change, that there's no uniqueness in anything. So with that dullness, often dullness gives rise to craving. You know, I'd like something more exciting to happen. You know, I'd really like something more interesting to occur. You know, so craving then often actually gives rise to agitation or restlessness. You know, agitation and restlessness is actually kind of the energy of craving. You know, it starts to make us hungry with our eyes, our ears, our minds and our bodies because we're on the lookout for that thing that's going to be more exciting and more interesting to compensate for the boredom. So we get the restlessness, we get the hunger. And then sometimes, of course, we, we set our hearts on this more exciting thing we focused on, you know. Uh, maybe we're going to go for a walk in the woods and meet a deer, you know, or maybe we're going to go do something else and it's going to be really interesting. And sometimes, of course, we get it and then we're disappointed. It wasn't quite, we're not quite as excited as we thought we might be. And so with that disappointment, often that gives rise to aversion. Oh, you know, aversion. Oh, you know, it just wasn't, didn't quite meet up to what I wanted. And how aversion in itself often gives rise to doubt. 
you know, we feel the disappointment, then we can feel, oh, you know, maybe nothing's worthwhile, you know, maybe I'm just not the kind of person who can really be interested, you know, maybe I don't have the right kind of spiritual portfolio, you know, I can't do this. And then the doubt often actually gives rise again to dullness. You know, and there's a whole kind of cyclical pattern, a kind of interweaving of some of these mind states that are changing all the time, and each time they're changing, they're kind of conditioning our view of who we are, our view of the world, our view of other people. And there's something extraordinarily fascinating about seeing those worlds arising and passing, arising and passing, and actually finding the space to hold all those arisings and passings, rather than getting lost in our conclusions about, you know, this is what's true, this is who I am, this is what's real, to really find the space to hold those changes, to hold those movements, without any conclusion whatsoever, but just with a real sense of interest. We're not helpless in all those movements. You know, we're not helpless in any of these mind states. You know, just because something has a long history, it doesn't mean that it has a long future. And that's such a good thought to hold on to. I mean, you can really hold on to that one for a while. No matter how long a history something has, it doesn't mean it has an equally long future. Because, you know, the good news here is that we have this capacity for awareness. We have the capacity for mindfulness, for understanding, to be able to understand both the process of these movements and understand the path. And one thing I would like to say is that understanding process and understanding path are not necessarily exactly the same thing. You know, understanding process is really being able to trace and to track the way in which our world is being created, the states of mind that arise, the constructions that arise, being able to see the conditions. That is understanding process. But path, is something we apply to process. You know, we're not here in this practice in order to learn how to be a kind of a passive spectator upon our own repeated disasters. We are here to learn about how to bring about transformation, how to find new pathways, how to find freedom. And this is where the whole question of path comes in. Learning what it means to apply a path of understanding, a path of freedom within the midst of process. You know, calmness, serenity, happiness, well-being, depth, these are not going to be found after all of these, some, these mind states somehow disappear. They are going to be found in the midst of them. What does path look like? I mean, to, to me, the very word path implies a conscious cultivation. A cultivation, a nurturing, a nourishing, a developing. 
a total engagement of heart and mind. And in that nurturing of path, mindfulness is an ally. It is the factor, mindfulness is the factor that allows Dharma gates to open. Mindfulness is what teaches us to slow down a little amidst the swirl of our mind states, our stories, our thoughts, to slow down and to be here, to really recognize what is going on. And to see that beneath all those kind, those movements of what I need, what I want, what I hate, what I love, what I'm bored with, underneath them there is a certain kind of climate or climate of mind and heart that we can acknowledge and we can recognize. And actually there's really quite a relief in being able to do that, being able to say, this is aversion, this is doubt. This is restlessness. This is craving. Not to say, I am like this. Not to say, this is my fault. Not to say, I have to be different. But to say, this is just what this is. That is actually the beginning of, of path. Through intimacy, through knowing. You know, it's really difficult to hate something that you truly know, that you truly are close to. When we begin to know where we are, then we begin to appreciate what is needed. You know, when there's aversion, when there's dullness, when there's agitation, when there's craving, when there's doubt, we can ask ourselves, what does this need? How do I care for this? What does this actually need? Rather than saying, I have to get rid of this. What does it need? What does it mean to care for this? And we see it's often very different in different moments. We begin to appreciate that when there's heaviness and dullness, what it needs, what it needs is is a certain closeness and intimacy. We can see how disconnecting, how distancing it is. And so we begin to find what dullness needs by coming close to dullness, by coming close to heaviness, by investigating it. How does it feel in our bodies? How does it feel in our minds? What would it mean for us to truly listen just to the sound of a bird in this moment? What would it mean for us to truly listen to just one breath? What would it mean for us to really explore that sense of dullness within our bodies? When we see a whole depreciation, uh, agitation in our attention and ask, what does it need? We see how agitation actually makes us so busy, you know? And so perhaps what agitation needs is really more stillness. Perhaps that really is what calms agitation, to find more stillness in our bodies, to learn how to rest in a breath, how to rest in a step, how to rest in a moment. Perhaps what agitation needs is a more conscious sense of intention, 
I mean, notice when there's agitation and restlessness, how, how it kind of pushes us through life in a very unconscious way. You know, we find ourselves in our room and we, we don't know how we got there or what we're doing there. You know, we find ourselves, you know, down making a cup of tea. We weren't even thirsty. You know, how many bathroom visits have we made in this walking period? You know, what would conscious intention mean? What would it mean to, to ask ourselves, what is this moment really dedicated to? You know, what is this sitting really dedicated to? What is this walking really dedicated to? What is our intention here? Learning to find stillness within that clarity of intention. You know, when we see craving, you know, that movement that so much makes us kind of lean forward, incline forward into the next moment, always looking for the sort of ideal moment, you know, when we have only the thoughts that we want, only the sensations that we want, only the feelings that we want, and how sometimes that kind of leaning forward in search of the perfect moment, you know, somehow it's often so unsuccessful, you know, that that perfect moment very rarely seems to arise. What does that craving need? You know, perhaps in that moment, what's needed is to learn how to lean back a little, to bring sensitivity, to find contentment with what is in this moment, learning to cultivate a kind of restraint and yet an appreciation, an appreciation of here, of our capacity to see, our capacity to hear, our capacity to touch, to find a fullness of being in that. You know, aversion, when it's present, it makes us lean back, doesn't it? We want to be further away. We want to distance ourselves. And what does that need? Sometimes it means we really need to know how to connect with joy. You know, it's often what's really missing when we feel aversive. It's a real absence of joy. And simple joys, the simple joy of, you know, watching one of the lizards scamper across our, our path, the simple joy of feeling the touch of the sun on our face, the simple joy of being able to breathe, of being here. And so in aversion, we, instead of leaning back, actually, we do need to lean forward a little bit more into here, into this moment. We see when we're very tied up in doubt, you know, how much it freezes us and what a big difference there is between that kind of paralyzing doubt that's usually mixed with aversion and a very creative doubt that simply is able to say, I don't know. It's simply able to say, I don't know. And sometimes when we're in doubt, you know, and we start asking, you know, what am I doing here? I want guarantees. I want certainties. You know, perhaps it might be helpful for us, you know, to hold that space within our consciousness, to hold that question within our consciousness of what does it mean simply to say, I don't know. I don't know. You know, that can be so terrifying for us, so, so frightening to us. And yet also we begin to discover it's really the place of great mystery in this practice and in our lives is to be able to say, I don't know, to allow ourselves to be surprised, to allow ourselves to be taught by, 
And that capacity to say, I don't know, is actually faith. Because we rest in ourselves. And we rest in that that sense of mystery and openness. These Dharma gates, they are always with us. You know, one of the great gifts of this practice is that we really see that the Dharma gates, the moments of learning, are really right with us. We don't have to look very far. We don't have to seek very hard. That we're just asked to open our eyes to what is with us right here. And that is mindfulness. And we see that within that, you know, somehow the, the, the ordinary can become very special and the special can also become very ordinary. And that is really this path of mindfulness. So if we take just a couple of moments quietly together. <laughs> some time for some walking for half an hour before the last group sitting of the day. So just before you go, could we have a little watch synchronization? I'm like a pilot here. Um, we're going to work by this time. This is the time. We're, and this might not be the right time, but this is the time we're going to work by. At this time, it is 8.26. So if we could all cooperate in that, and then bell ringers especially, if you could synchronize your watches with this time. And if you could also, we could ask you to be quite really, quite vigorous in your bell ringing. Um, remember, don't worry about disturbing people. You are intended to disturb people. So if you could make sure that you ring the bell seven minutes before the beginning of sittings or talks or whatever. So we could kind of have a synchronized sense of beginning together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.